Happy Independence Day! It's Jan- It's <laughs> July 4th, not January, 2018. Welcome to another edition of Bite Marsh Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and innovation. I'm Bert Lom. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First, we're going to hear about the Brain Computer Hackathon happening at UH later this month. Jonas Vibel is here on this national holiday to tell us all about it. And then we'll learn about some new digital tools making it easier for researchers to study corals and the coastline. We got Paolo Marin and Ross Winans from NOAA, and they're going to join us after the break. But first off, let's welcome Jonas from the UH Psychology Department. He's here to tell us about that brain computer interface hackathon. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here, and a happy 4th of July to everyone. Yes, happy Independence Day. Yes, very good. So, you know, we've Done a lot of hackathons, all kinds of hackathons from the, you know, NASA Space Apps Challenge to the Hawaii Annual Code Challenge. I've not heard about a brain hackathon. What is this brain hackathon all about? Yes, it's quite unique that we have a brain-machine interface hackathon here in Hawaii, and I'm very excited to host some of the brain royalty from all over the brain world royalty. coming here to Hawaii and teaching us how to interface brains and uh, 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 computers. So I've heard of the phrase human-computer interaction. In fact, there's a lab at the University of Hawaii. But what is the difference between a, an HCI and a brain com- uh, interface? So the main difference with a uh, brain-machine interface or a brain-computer interface, as it's also called, is that uh, that it's obviously the brain that controls something. So we uh, now have... a uh, reliable technologies that can record different types of signals from the brain. And these brains we can use to control almost anything. So if you want to turn off the lights using only your brain, you can do that. Or if you want to uh, have a robot that goes and gets you a sandwich from the fridge so you you don't have to stand (laughs) up from the couch, uh, then you can basically do that with your brain. So, so Jonas, uh, you were saying <coughs> that it's an interface that really kind of you put it onto your head and it detects signals out of your brain. Can you give us a sense of uh, what sort of signals are there? Are they electromagnetic signals? And, and how do you get the specificity for that, that EM signal to turn out the lights or get you a sandwich? There are different types of signals you can record from the brain. So there's two main ones. Uh, either it's, it's you can record blood flow, such as uh, M- uh, MRI and fMRI do these. Mm-hmm. So basically when an area in the brain is, is more active, it, it consumes uh, uh, oxygen, and then you can measure uh, changes in that and see a ch- uh, changes in the brain. Or you can uh, uh, record the uh, neuronal signals from, uh, from the neurons in the brain, from the cortex in the brain mainly. And these signals you can also use to uh, control computers and anything you want, really. So how much of it is training the computer to understand what a brain might be doing? And how much do you have to train yourself to <laughs> generate the kind of signal that a computer might understand at this early stage, I would imagine, in this technology? That's a very, very good question. So um, the first uh, brain-machine interface uh, technology that I was involved in uh, really was a merging of the world. So if you think about it, we're um, trying to understand a language that we don't really know much about. So h- how does the, the brain represent certain things? So um, the, the language can be quite unusual. It doesn't really matter what type of activation it is in the brain. So let's say you think about pizzas. 
and we get a reliable signal in, mm-hmm. in the brain every time you think about pizza, then we can use that uh, to control a drone to turn right or to control an artificial limb to move. And it doesn't really matter so much if it's pizzas or mountains that you think about. But you're, you're looking at the drone and you're like, oh, it's heading toward a tree. Pizza, 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 pizza. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so then, then you have to become really adept at thinking clearly about pizza quickly. Fascinating. So uh, I'm curious, how much of the computational or <clears throat> analysis is taking place real time with whatever devices you have around you? Or are you calling in some machine learning or artificial intelligence database that's correlating your brain signals and what might be the most probable thing that you're asking for, (laughs) whether it's pizzas or drones? So if you think about it, uh, for example, if you want to control a mouse cursor, the minimum amount of uh, input you need to control a mouse cursor from which you can basically do anything. You can surf the web. You can do loads of things. You basically just need three input signals. Mm -hmm. It needs to move to the right and uh, up, and then you need a click, and then you can select anything on the screen. So if you have three input choices, such as pizza mountains and and a third thing cars (laughs) then you can basically control most things so it's at a it's at a still early stage of you know the resolution of the thoughts and how they translate into the physical manifestation yes so it's it's an early stage it's uh uh, for those of you who've been around it's maybe even before the commodore 64 stage Mm -hmm. but it's moving very quickly Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. things are changing and within the next five to ten years i think it'll be very feasible to uh, control things very simply and clearly with this. So tell us about this hackathon. What is it, where, and when? I mean, how does it come together? Uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a bunch of experts in these fields that come from uh, Austria, Spain, South America, Japan, and all over the U.S., and, and uh, come here to Hawaii, and and they're kind enough to uh, invite anyone who wants to learn more about how to interface uh, brains and machines to Mm. come, not this Sunday, but this uh, Sunday after that. So the 15th, it starts at 10 a.m., and... um, and for free, they will teach anyone who has interest in a field related to this. So, for example, uh, and brain-machine interfaces, but also design or medicine or psychology like myself or uh, 3D printing to come down and learn more. And you'll be coached by some of the absolute experts in the world, which is a fantastic opportunity. So there, is there a high level of probability you will have something attached to your head as part of, as a participant? Absolutely. <laughs> well, that sounds like a draw to me. Yeah. So well, they're going to have to make a really big one for yours. For my big head, absolutely. <laughs> so Anouk Viprecht, the fashion, yes, yes, uh, yes, fashion yes, technologist who has been here to Hawaii. Yep. Uh, uh, and she has designed this headset, which is very easy to use, that, that they are coming with and that they let us work with and this headset reads your brain signals and they will train us how to interface that with things such as uh, Twitter or draw (laughs) with your brain or an artificial limb or control a drone or uh, a camera, for example. Well, Jonas, this sounds great. So it uh, starts on Sunday, July 15th over at the University of Hawaii at Manoa's Campus Center. Where can people go to find more information? So um, to find more about, uh, to find out more, you can just go online at brain.io and that is spelled with a 41. So br 41 N ah. dot I-O okay. forward slash Honolulu. And right. then you'll l- see everything you need to know. And there you can sign up to be on one of the teams and uh, uh, 
take part in this challenge. And you don't have to have any real expertise, right? I mean, just a, a genuine interest in this, in this topic. Absolutely. We welcome and everyone. And hopefully you are brave enough to be on a team and partake in, in, in this two-day challenge. Or you can just, uh, we also encourage people who are interested and media to just come along and see what it's all about. Very good. Jonas, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And, of course, uh, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Paolo Marin and Ross Winans from NOAA to tell us about 3D printing of corals and the Digital Coastline Project. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. I can't imagine life without Morning Edition. One of the things that, as a news junkie, I like about listening to public radio is the news from different places. How we can listen to news from the BBC or from Deutsche Welle, and it's always interesting to hear from beyond the U.S. perspective, to hear how we're perceived in the world and to hear other people's voices. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. So now joining us are Paolo Marin and Ross Winans. Paolo is the Coral Program Hawaii Management Liaison. He works in the office uh, for uh, NOAA's Office for Coral Coastal Management. And meanwhile, Ross Winans also works in that great NOAA Office for Coastal Management. He is the remote sensing specialist there. And of course, how are these digital tools helping to, I guess, protect our marine resources? Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Thanks. Thank you. So let's start off with a little bit of both of, of what you do so that uh, we can get an orientation because you, you both work in sort of the same office but do different things. So, Paolo, maybe start with you. Sure. Uh, I work very closely with the Hawaii Division of Aquatic Resources, so that's a state agency that Mm -hmm. is tasked with protecting coral reefs in the state waters. And here we have a sort of a cooperative agreement between NOAA and them, and we help them fund projects that are helping coral reefs across the state. And there's an education focus to what you do. Yes, and there's an education focus to a lot of what we do all over in the office Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And Ross, I mean, what, so yeah, so in your office, what does your projects focus on? So almost all of my projects involve spatial data. So you can think of me as more of like a data scientist mm-hmm. or like a uh, like a data scientist that makes a lot of maps. So usually when I explain my job, I say it's like Google Earth, but like a lot more intense. Hmm. And then you are both, uh, your projects address a different audience. Maybe, Paolo, what, what does uh, your projects really kind of go out there and, and inform what which audience? So generally, within the coral program, we are working to address the threats, the main threats of coral reef, climate change, uh, excessive fishing, mm. and pollution that comes from the ground. So a lot on the sci- science-heavy. Now, 
sometimes it's a challenge to convey what we're doing mm -hmm. to the public. And we got to try really, really hard on coming up with ways to make the messaging that we have of why we're doing all of this in a way that they can understand and relate to that. So, well, yeah, science communication is certainly something we like to cover. That storytelling is important to reach the public. And I see Paulo has some props in front of him, and we're going to get to that. Oh, yeah. But, Ross, so you talk about mapping. I guess GIS plays a role, spatial information. Where's the public uh, exchange for that? How do you reach people when it sounds like you're saying it's intense Google Maps? Mm -hmm. So the best spot to go to find all the analysis that we're doing at the Office for Coastal Management and the analysis and data that our partners are putting out across federal, local government is the uh, NOAA Digital Coast. So at, at its core, Digital Coast is a website, but it's really like a place where data, tools, training, uh, public outreach and awareness, stories about what's going on in your community with coastal management, it's where it all comes together into one central hub that's accessible for everyone from coastal management to the general public who just wants to learn a little bit more about what's going well, on. Well, maybe if you have the URL, you can send it to me later. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious, you know, in terms of uh, coming onto the show, is there is there a particular timeliness that, that both triggered your interest in, in sharing what you're doing? Is it something that, you know, has been a uh, project in development and now you're, you know, sort of releasing it to the public? I mean, how long have you been working on, on sort of the digital coastline? So the Digital Coast has been out for over a decade now. I've been working on the project personally as part of the larger team uh, over like the last five years. Uh, there's no single event that I'd say brought me here today, but just uh, we're always looking for opportunities to raise public awareness. And it seemed like Bite Marks Cafe was you know perfect for the audience. Oh, good. I mean, have you been sharing what you've been doing on other sort of media outlets? Not so much media, you know. Uh, we do a lot of outreach to the classrooms. We participate okay. in community events, um, you know, like Earth Day events, things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, but no direct, you know, widespread outreach. Well, you let's guys talk are then. The first. Yes, well, Great. we're Very grateful good. for that. So let's talk about the outreach to classrooms because I think that's what Paulo has in front of him. These are, I guess, three D printed coral polyps. They look like tiny little volcanoes with uh, Medusa hair. I, you know, it's kind of hard <laughs> to, hair, to describe yeah. it, but um, they're very compelling visually. Uh, certainly, they, they draw attention. I'm glad you find them compelling. And the idea is that nowadays, you got to make science compelling, engage and draw people to what you're doing. So in terms of the timeliness for why we're here, we've been developing this for the past few months. Mm. And we released it about four weeks ago. And we also made an educational video that goes along with this. Now, corals are tiny. Um, mm -hmm. Most of them, there are exceptions, of course, but most of them are about the size of a grain of rice. Mm. But it's a little bit harder to see exactly what they are. And there's a lot of complexities that you don't see with the naked eye. Mm -hmm. So we made a model of one polyp. In reality, a colony is what forms a, a reef. You have mm -hmm. a whole bunch of these little guys working together. But one polyp is an animal. And it's an amazing animal, one that has a partnership with a symbiotic algae within it. So the model that we have here, you can see that we created this on Autodesk, mm -hmm. and we model the skeletal structure that is a f formed the basis, the calcium carbonate basis of a coral. 
And then you can see the animal aspect, the medusa hair right. that you mentioned. There's tentacles and a, a mouth when you, they are together. Mm -hmm. And then when you split it apart, it, they fit it's together. It's a cross leg of, mm -hmm. yeah, leg So of. it's about the size of a coffee mug. I'd say if you've seen the giant teeth in your dentist's office, it's <laughs> kind of reminiscent of that in terms of the calcium or the, the, the gums at the bottom and the, the structure of it. But it is, it's pretty cool. So um, the students get to handle this and you can talk about that structure. Exactly. And they get to see the skeleton. I say, that's a skeleton very much like we have in a skeleton. Here's the animal part and the tentacles and the mouth in there. And sometimes if I have little pieces of whatever, I, they can fit it in there. But the cool part is that we also made it dynamic. Um, we mentioned that climate change is one of the main threats that we are working to address. It's a major threat to coral reefs. And when water temperatures get too hot, they bleach, meaning that they, leave, and they lose that symbiotic relationship with the algae. And then what do you see? Uh, it's called bleaching because what you see is a, the entire coral colony turning mm -hmm. white. You're actually seeing the skeleton. So what I'm going to do here is a little bit of science magic. Oh, my lord. So, so there's actually a demonstration. So I'm taking a video. We'll post that on our uh, show notes at bitemarscafe.org okay. as well. So maybe you can help me by describing what you see here. So I brought a little bit of hot water, mm -hmm. which is the equivalent of a very, very modern ocean, uh -huh. that, uh, rather in the middle of a summer. Or say Kaneohe Bay. Kaneohe Bay, late summer. And then we're going to see what happens when we expose a coral to these very elevated ocean temperatures. So maybe you can describe what you're seeing. Yeah. Here. So this uh, what was I guess blue, a, a blue coral uh, is now a very light blue. It's already turned white. It's very uh, bleached looking. Exactly. So at this and thank you for helping here along. But what do you see here is a coral basically that lost a symbiotic relationship, uh -huh. and it turns white. You're seeing basically through the skeleton. But now I want you to tell the audience what you're seeing in the tip. So the tip's staying a kind of a darker shade of blue, or is it already? Did it recover back? from the yeah from the heat? So it's cooling off, and now it's turning back to the blue color. You guys are natural scientists. Oh, <laughs> so a coral bleaching event? Are you saying is not a distinctly or you always a fatal event for a coral? Absolutely. So a bleaching event is not a death sentence. The mm -hmm. corals can recover if it's short enough. Normally, if it's under four weeks and the corals haven't been stressed too much before that, they can come back just like in the model that it had turned white, but now you see the color coming back. So that means that the coral that we have here is a very resilient and strong coral. Well, I feel like a very engaged uh, student right now. And you had others as well, like they, they some glow in the dark and take light and can be bioluminescent and some others don't. So uh, what has the reaction been? You've said you've only just made these. Have you been able to deploy them in real classrooms? So we've been going to many outreach events. We were at the Koalina uh, event for the World Oceans Day, a very cool event where they show Moana in Hawaiian. And we were showing this. So we're going to the Waikiki Aquarium and all these other places. And uh, I just have lines of students mm -hmm. that want to try this out. And they see it, but they all want to hold the coral, put it in water, torture it a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> but see it come to life, come back to life. 
And all along, I'm basically using that engagement to teach them about concepts that normally are a little bit harder for More them abstract. to get across. Yeah. The resiliency and symbiosis and basically forming a reef and how we depend with them. And with do, you them. See, do you see the students sort of taking uh, an, an interest in sort of marine life and maybe per- perhaps pursuing or maybe talking to the teacher about finding out more about the corals and the life cycle? Absolutely. Just now, outside waiting for this interview in your studio, I had two uh, young students. <laughs> oh, yeah. My kids, yes. <laughs> that were in, uh, absolutely in love with the corals that they were seeing here, and they wanted to see how they work, and they wanted to see how they glow. So, by the way, I should mention that what we made the model, and it can be printed in different materials. So the one that I brought here is a thermal-sensitive material, mm-hmm, but it can, be, it can be printed on ultraviolet-sensitive filaments. So then, basically, you have endless possibilities to create uh, a natural... And this is a NOAA pr- a creation, your creation, so presumably, you would be if you have 3D printing capability, you can make one yourself. Absolutely, that's the idea. So All we right. release it out oh, for the very public. good. That's oh, great, and, you, and uh, I love this uh, the detail and the descriptions that you've allowed us to uh, uh, sort of uh, you know give the audience a sense of what the experiment looks like. Want to get back to Ross and find out more about uh, you know his GIS uh, uh, work? Uh, but we want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with both. Paolo Marin and Ross Winans about protecting our marine resources. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training, Moyer Financial, and Kaiser Permanente. Welcome back. This is Bike Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And if you're just joining us, we're talking to Paolo Marin and Ross Winans about new digital tools at NOAA that help people better understand our coastline. And of course, uh, right before the break, we're getting really into the 3D printed uh, coral polyp and (laughs) its ability to change right in front of our face. But we want to move on a little bit to uh, Ross's work and his collection of data to really better inform what our coastlines look like. And Ross, you were describing, you know, you you sort of take big images of stuff and sort of bring it into something that's more manageable and, and, and allow coastal management uh, personnel to, to better understand. Are you able to now sort of trace or track the, the changing coastline over the period of time that you've been studying? Certainly, yeah. So I think you hit on it pretty well there. Uh, the kind of work I do is almost the opposite of what Paula was talking about, taking big things and making them small so that you can see exactly what's going on on like the island scale or even the national scale even. So I think some good examples of like the changing coastlines and, mm-hmm. and making things a little bit more accessible would be the um, the sea level rise and coastal flooding impacts viewer, which is a tool that's a publicly accessible tool on NOAA's digital coast. And what this tool does is it allows you to envision what uh, inundation would look like Mm. in your community over time. So um, imagine it as like a Google Maps type interface with satellite imagery. So you can see your neighborhoods, the school you went to, you know, where you go grocery shopping. And then you can drag a slider to kind of look at what different inundation scenarios would look like. So if I say to you guys, um, we're going to get like, you know, 30 centimeters or about a foot of, you know, sea level rise in the the next 100 years, you guys... probably doesn't sound like a lot, right? Like Mm -hmm. 30 centimeters. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it on a map, 30 centimeters is a lot of inland area. So very small, you know, changes in the ocean can result in major impacts on land. 
And the sea level rise viewer is really a starting point for the conversation where you can kind of visualize what parts of your community might be exposed to mm. hazards. And it doesn't just have to be sea level rise. It can be, um, you know, flooding from a storm or tsunami waves, all different types of things cause mm-hmm. inundation. Well, we, we saw a lot of uh, attention in this when we have coverage of king tides and unusually yes. high tides. Yep. And, you know, certainly uh, whether it's low-lying areas like Mapu- parts of Mapunapuna or maybe Kaka'ako where people are kind of worried. When you talk about your coastlines project, how much of the Hawaiian islands are you um, imaging and tracking, certainly not just Oahu? No, so we're a national office, so we're tracking all of the coastal areas of the United States, and that also includes the U.S. island, the uh, territories, so Guam, mm. American Samoa, CNMI. So all it's available for all of the islands in Hawaii right now. Oh, so your office actually has... Uh, oversight of all the coastlines in the U.S.? So it's not so much oversight. There's a lot of different agencies working in a lot of areas. Uh, We provide, we're more of a service-oriented office where we're trying to empower local communities to really build better resilience. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. here in Hawaii, for instance, you have like the Office of Planning at the state level, and they're doing a fantastic job of making sure, and like Hawaii Civil Defense, they're all working in lockstep to make sure that the coastlines are secure, happy places to live, economically vibrant. And that's where we come in is we're really just trying to, to provide data and tools to enhance that mission. So I'm curious, uh, you know, in the city and county, there's an office of sustainability and, and resilience. Mm-hmm. And they're looking at uh, much of the things that you're talking about. So I'm curious, how do you interface with them and how do they take the information that you've created to better plan, perhaps, uh, in, in the city and county of Honolulu? Sure. So uh, we have a lot of um, data, tools, products that that we just make at the national level. So you could compare like community to community Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. island to island. So if a jurisdiction has a narrower focus, they can kind of look down and see what other communities are doing, whether they're in the same ballpark or whether they want to kind of like adopt ideas from other communities and bring them within the community here, kind of like an exchange of ideas, a free flow of information. Well, we can certainly see the role that um, your work has on policymakers, people who make decisions regarding planning, etc. Um, let me get back to Paulo. So here you are inspiring children, understanding maybe how something small is part of a big, bigger thing like a coral reef and actually part of our greater earth. Um, what what impact are you looking for uh, if it's not shifting you know, funding for a city project? What's the ideal outcome when you are successful in reaching students with your exhibits? The ideal outcome would be for them to fall in love with the marine environment. That's the first thing that you want to see. If there's no law, there's no interest, and it's hard to follow up on that. So once they are fully engaged, once they're in love with the ocean, we have them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> they'll want to pursue that uh, in whatever way they can in the future. There are many ways that a community can help uh, the local coral reef environment. We are basically, the ocean is us, and we are the ocean. So whatever we do inland will eventually get to the ocean and affect the coral reefs because they are basically, they've been called the canaries in the coal mine, that whenever they go, uh, it's a sign that there are many things that are not going well. Hmm. So the students can learn about local actions that they can do beginnings uh, with uh, Uh, trying to do less runoff or fertilizers or trying to reduce their carbon footprint or being more uh, better at consuming sustainable local seafood. So there's a lot of steps that we're trying to get them for them to understand. But primarily what I want to see when I show them these corals is Mm. for them to be in love with the ocean. Great. And and Ross, uh, you know, I would love to hear your story about getting students in love with Mm. data. Mm-hmm. How do you go about doing that? Because we we definitely need to get them uh, 
on that track because of obviously there's going to be a lot more data for them to analyze in the future. Yeah, sure. So I think the first thing is is you got to make it interactive, right? No one wants to sit and watch another PowerPoint presentation. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. I think that's not a very effective way to reach out to anyone, especially young people. So these days it's gotten a lot easier. Um, a lot of the software and, and things like programming languages have come down to the level where it can be applied by a lot of different people. So uh, we try and design like hands-on curriculum aimed at like the community we're going into. So if it's a community that's more of like a Great Lakes community, we're not going to come in and present like a data set from Hawaii, for instance, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. tailoring it to the local area and then making sure that it's a hands-on thing with a lot of engagement and a lot of active thinking. Have you have you been uh, successful in some of the schools or some of the presentations that you've done here to students? Oh, for sure. Yeah, you definitely see the level of engagement when you get them down there and, and get them looking at things. I think maps are a really powerful you know, tool for communication because uh, whether they know it or not or whether people know it or not, you use maps every day when you're using Google Maps or when you're going to Yelp to look for a restaurant. So I feel like in a lot of ways, maps are kind of like a common language that, that everyone understands when they look at it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we're almost out of time. If somebody wanted to look at the digital coastline, do you have a advice on how they can find it and play with these tools on their computers? Sure. So you could go to uh, coast.noaa.gov slash digital coast mm. or even easier, you could just type NOAA digital coast into Google and it'll be the first one that comes up. And uh, Paul? Hello. If I wanted to print my own cool coral polyp, where would I go? Well, first to uh, the 3D printer store. Okay. But once you have a 3D <laughs> printer with you, just Google three Enoa 3D coral polyp and, and it'll we come show up. up. Very good. Well, we'll definitely put that up on our show notes for later on tonight. And, of course, uh, Paolo Marin and Ross Winans, they're both in the office for coastal management over at NOAA. We want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll learn about the 40th International Conference of the IEEE Engineering and Medicine and Biology Society. And of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. If you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong. Thanks for coming in on Independence Day. You can catch us on HPR One every Wednesday or anytime via the HPR app. And of course, uh, happy Independence Day. You all stay safe, you stay awesome, and we'll see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Here we come.